Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. The way that you guys would tackle issues, from what you've said, Ben, is instead of going out and yeah. going, hey. I want to talk about that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what, uh, that's what the vegan... Angry vegan? Maybe? Angry vegan. Yeah, yeah. That's where they've gone wrong. Yeah, I, I, I they agree. They should be going down his road. Were you not thinking that? This is one thing, yeah, I did want to talk about this. I'm glad you raised it because then Jeremy and I have talked about the angry vegan well movement for a long time mm. in terms of how to best make change. It's not about you know, getting on your high horse and feeling good about yourself as an individual. That doesn't help anyone. It doesn't help any chicken or, or cow or whatever. And I think the more recent climate activity around, you know, we need change, we need action on climate, you know, what does that mean? There's no point getting up in front of a whole bunch of people, getting anyone rolled up and demanding change without actually outlining exactly what that change is. And also you've got to realise that the greenhouse gas emission industries of the world, the the Fords, the Chryslers, the the, the coal-powered stations, the nuclear, whatever, whatever it might be. These guys, whilst they might be part of the problem, they're certainly part of the solution. So you talk about the, the angry vegan market. I'd be, instead of getting on my high horse and, and beating my chest down the street, whatever, I'd, I'd first conversation I'd have would be with KFC, Maccas, yep. those sort of groups. And, and no, no, and the first conversation would be with your friends and family going – Hey guys, the, you know the most po- the quickest action you can take is by your friends and family being flexitarians. Number one, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, you know, no offense, not KFC ain't going to take a call from you. To be honest, they should because like uh, like fifteen percent of the Australian population who classify themselves as vegan, vegetarian, or rarely eat meat. Who, un- where, where, where's that survey from? So and a in, lot of okay, a lot, in twenty fourteen, a lot, a lot of people survey. like to say they are, but they're not. It's like a lot of oh. people. It's like littering. A lot of people don't litter. <laughs> In, in 2014, there was a survey that showed 11% of Australians were classify themselves as vegan, vegetarian, or rarely eat meat. Rarely eat meat. I know, but and you know what those forms are like. You, you know, you get a bit of, oh, uh, you know, it's like, it's like you go to the doctor and they say, oh, do you smoke? No. You know? No, I don't. But no, I'm just saying, but how does it compare how to many surveys do you do? <laughs> exactly. How, how many surveys from around the world backs it yeah, up? Uh, so look, where I, are, where that, are that's, we? That's the weird thing about the whole vegan movement, if you want to call it that. There's actually very little statistics around it, which is amazing. Well, can I jump in, though, with yeah, a, a different perspective? I get you saying about the surveys and thing, but the thing that makes me know 
that that is actually true and that the flexitarians or the mm. vegetarians, whatever you want to call them. See it on the menus. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Simple as that. Yeah. I mean, come on. What does KFC really do? It doesn't produce chicken. It produces profit. Yeah, yeah. And if they're producing a plant-based burger, it's because they know there's demand for it. And it's as simple as that. Hungry Jacks, you'll love this. You made that point about maybe 20 years' time where they'll be. Hungry Jacks, and because the CEO, the founder or something, was interviewed recently. Yep. And he's like, oh, yeah. He said, oh, we are going plant-based big time because yep. two things. We don't think that beef production is going to be able to keep up with the projected demand in developing countries. And the second is because the millennials want it. Absolutely. I thought that's fantastic because he's essentially saying from a business perspective, we're going to make more money. Well, he's also saying, we're just not going to be able to produce that much beef. We're going to break the planet. Mm. So we've got to do something else. The plant-based is that. And look, contrary to what you say, there's always going to be, in my personal opinion, a time for a tasty bit of steak on a special occasion, a nice glass of red wine. And meat should be that treat, like you say. It should be, oh, hey, if you're really into a nice big bit of meat, great. At Easter... Or at Christmas, have have that. It should be a really great treat, and therefore, if we reduce that down enough, you know, then it comes down to personal choice. Then you'll be happy because the world will be a better place. Because at the moment, you know, people like you, you get angry and go, "Oh God!" <laughs> no, no, vegans they get real angry and go, "You're you're stuffing up my environment by eating heaps of meat." Yeah. But if we get it down to the point where the environment's not being effective, you won't care if oh, other... When we're down to that point, yeah, I'll be happy. Great. We're all cool. away. Anyway. Yeah, You mentioned something. Well, I want, want to bring, bring the conversation back to Ocean Plastic because mm. you made an interesting comment about this sort of innovative solution around Weeper where we can actually capture these ghost nets. I, I must admit I've never heard this before. Mm. Can you can you explain that further to me? So essentially what it is, it's, it's something that CSIRO put forward with an organisation called Ghost Nets. A really fantastic woman named Ricky Gunn who did a lot of the early early work, working with indigenous communities up there to sort of, you know, get the nets off the beaches. And they said, well, look, because of the way in which the nets enter the Gulf, where they're always entering up in that sort of um, northeastern part, if you could intercept them there, you could drag them off and probably do something with them. Because remember, the thing about these plastics is you can reuse them, right? I mean, you know, Dresden sunglasses. Yeah ghost nets, uh, sea folly, all this kind of stuff, and the local indigenous communities use those ghost nets to make art that they sell for profit. So what we want to do is investigate this option. If we got them out of the oceans, and again, you know, this is not an outsourced solution, but it still means that they wouldn't get down to the turtles. You get them out, and then we can house them somewhere, and then you could repurpose them to something else. And so that's that's an option, we think, at the least, while we're dealing with the problem at source. Yeah, that's so. Uh, that's really interesting. Like, so w- where is that solution at? It's obviously been proposed by the CSIRO and pushing it along. We're really trying to get some buy-in from different organisations. When you say we, you're talking about World, <coughs> World Animal, Animal Protection. Protection. Yeah. yeah. So we are currently uh, designing a whole new series of aerial surveys up in the Gulf with James Cook Uni and CSIRO and an organisation called Earthwatch, a great mob. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I've been pushing government to think about is doing this interception point. We've also been talking to Rio Tinto about it because, of course, they're a big corporate presence in, uh, in Weeper. So we're trying to get that off the ground at the moment. It, it's hard going, it's hard slog, but, um, you know, we think that it's something which potentially we could get up. But, you know, we're far away from that point at this time. Wow, man, so many questions to ask yeah. Ben. I'm like, man, this, this podcast might go for four hours. <laughs> So you talked about cutting it off at the source, though. So can you explain what potential solutions that World Animal Protection is actually working towards seeing happen? Sure. So years ago now, uh, World Animal Protection set up a thing called the Global Ghost Gear Initiative. 
Uh, it was a big multi-sectoral uh, initiative and it's got governments and the fishing industry and NGOs and the like and it essentially explores options, you know, solutions for dealing with ghost nets and the like. So it's everything from, you know, making sure there are trackers on nets, all that kind of thing. And it's actually trying to address the problem at source and also look at cleanup solutions. We developed a best practice framework for fishing industry and said, you know, essentially follow this framework and that means that you will be contributing to the solution, right? In Australia, we don't need to do that so much because the domestic industry is really good on this issue. Okay, well, yeah. that's a good news story, isn't it? Yeah. Really, so Absolutely. we've got very little, I guess, cut lines or, or dumped fish nets. Does that, does that happen? We we talk to them about this. Uh, so, for example, the Triple GI, the Global Ghost Gear Initiative, uh, it has corporate members, and one of them is in the Northern Prawn Fishery uh, up there. You know, in that part of the world, they've been great, and these guys have been really making sure they don't lose their nets. We spoke to a longlining uh, industry. I won't name the exact yep. person, but uh, hit down around the sub Antarctic areas. And we asked him about losing nets. He said, no, we don't do that. If we lose a net, we go back and get it because it's so expensive. You know, we don't want to do that because we know the impact. And, and, and therein lies again, coming back to that KFC money thing, you know, that prawn fishery you were talking about, they're, they're not only doing it because it's the right thing to do, but then if their prawns go on the shelf mm. and their brand is affected in any way because of that, they'll lose bottom line. That's so, exactly right. You know, so it, it's the shift in the movement, really. It's like the KFCs, the Impossible Burgers. Mm. You know, they, they, if they want to stay profitable, that's what they've got to do. So as a, as a consumer, how can I know that my prawn or fish is from Australian fishing groups? Well, it, it depends in Australia. So a lot of the fish that we consume here is also tuna. You know, yep. I mean, you think about it, you go to Coles or Woolies, there's yep. just rows of canned tuna. you just got to look out for them. Most of them now are doing the right thing and they're using pole and line caught tuna, and that's great. And back in the day when I worked for Greenpeace, we actually ran the campaign that led to that. They were using fads, big things, fish aggregating mm. devices, unsustainable practices with a lot of bycatch, and they did the right thing when we put the pressure on them. John West in particular led the way. Yep, he said John West was the best. But it's interesting you say, so you're advocating for no use of long line fishing? I don't know if it's long line. It was the fish aggregating devices that were the concern. What are they? Oh, does that mean like you... Yeah, yeah you're burly, mate. You put down... That's right. Yeah, it's anyway, burly oh, is. Yeah, you yeah, put yeah. like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, burly, they're, yeah. they're big structures that they just... They just throw them out there. Oh, okay. Because the fish orders come in and right. then they're this hoovered up. But right. the bycatch around that was pretty horrendous. Mm. And so... And your turtles also on that. So John West and the other fishing companies have done the right thing on that. And most of the tuna by now is pole and line caught. Beyond that point in Australia, it's really a matter of looking around. I mean, you know, again, if you go to Coles and Woolies after this and you have a look at say the prawns or the other th- things it's clearly marked where it comes from mm. and w- i generally think that for a whole range of reasons air miles and other things it's best to buy australian yeah can i ask you in your professional opinion or personal opinion what you think of the msc Look, I think it's a good initiative and I think they're doing uh, a sensible job of trying to lift standards across the industry. You know, I think sometimes people criticise it. That's not a bad thing because it keeps the MSC on their toes. But I think generally it's better than nothing, isn't it? I mean, if I'm in the shops tomorrow and I know I can choose something which is MSC certified as opposed to not, I'll always go with the former. And again, it's highlighting the simple things and give the (laughs) consumer the choice to make the right decision, which is only going to be a good thing. I think that's right. I think also with corporate campaigning, like our sort of approach to it also (laughs) as a matter of principle is that, you know, we would prefer a company to do the right thing because they've said, yep, we had a look at what you've asked us to do and we can do that and we can make money out of doing that because the message that sends to the rest of the market is much more positive. Come catch me. That's right. And if they're only doing it because they're like, oh, look, we had these guys on our case for two years and they basically bullied us into doing it, we didn't want to, mm-hmm. and our profits have you know suffered, et cetera, no one else is going to do that, are no. they? Whereas no, if we can say, well, look, you know, it comes back to a point you're making about KFC, okay, well, 
you adopt these better animal welfare standards and your profits continue to go up. So what's the problem? So we talked about ocean plastic in terms of fishnets, but what about sort of the, the I guess, the more land-based sources? Is, uh, is World Animal Protection getting involved in trying to mitigate those land-based sources well, of plastic so, pollution? So firstly, can, can we just clarify, this is World Animal Protection, the Australian headquarters. That's right. Yeah, in great. Minutes. So how do you guys, just for the listeners... How do you guys all work? How many countries are you in? Can you just explain the hierarchy yeah, sure. set up, please? Sure. So we're an international organisation. Uh, we've got offices in 15 countries, but we're active in more than that. Um, headquarters is in London. Uh, and generally what we do is we get together once a year. We have our campaigns, which we work on. You know, I haven't mentioned all the others. Like mm. uh, uh, We particularly focus on uh, animals and entertainment venues. You know, we really um, were uh, a central part of the campaign to sort of stop people uh, riding elephants. Uh, which we've got to. We're doing a lot of work on captive dolphins. Of course, we've got you know one of the world's biggest dolphin area up on the Gold Coast, SeaWorld. So essentially, we get together once a year. We uh, agree on what the campaigns are going to be and all the officers work on those campaigns. And yeah, we're active in a lot of different countries. So that's how we work. So in Australia and New Zealand, yeah, we do that work. Um, we do work with the American office, the Thai office. We contribute to international campaigns. We've uh, had an international campaign to get Expedia, a big online travel company, to stop selling uh, tickets to dolphin area and we contribute to that campaign yeah. and it's a it's worth noting it's a it's a big group like i was actually mm. gobsmacked i jumped on your website and i hope you don't mind me bringing it up it's publicly available but you're obviously very well resourced yep. like you i think your last uh year you were funded to the tune of about 56 million dollars us globally that's globally right. yeah and that's from members of the public that's yeah, incredible yeah, yeah. In, just, in australia it's the same thing i mean look People love animals. They want to see them yeah. being treated well. And I think, frankly, if you look around, we're an organisation which actually gets things done. It's yeah, important. yeah. And like, so obviously it's a very effective – it's one thing to throw money to, on a big pile of, you know, whatever and do nothing with it. But you guys seem to be very, very effective and actually achieve some very impressive results. Yeah, thank you. And, I mean, the, the better chicken commitment that KFC made, uh, World Animal Protection was one of the leading organisations that did that. You know, there were some other fantastic organisations as well, but no, we were certainly a part of it. I'm just looking at your website, annual achievements for 2018. So you vaccinated 97,000 dogs mm. uh, against rabies in Africa. Mm. You directly saved more than 460,000 animals affected by disasters in 12 different countries. You worked yep. with companies in Thailand to improve the lives of 2.6 million intensively farmed pigs mm. and convinced 22 more travel companies to stop selling tickets to and promoting cruel wildlife attractions. Yep. And that's, that's yes. some... So that's a pretty good scorecard. Yeah, no, we're very happy with it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, obviously every year we get to the end of it and say we wish we'd achieve more. Of course. But uh, generally, yeah, we look at back at a year and think we're pretty happy with what we did. We think that uh, that the Australian people who, uh, you know, give us a, a monthly donation should be pretty happy with what we've done with it. And, and actually it's interesting you bring up the dolphin thing because actually my one of my brothers uh, was in the Caribbean on a family sort of holiday and actually made the mistake of jumping on a – jumping in with the dolphin pen with and riding on it and he sent me the photos i'm like well 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 <laughs> mr brother um and i sort of quickly referred well, which to which brother was this this is matthew my matthew matthew he's actually stick about this podcast <laughs> mate and you're riding dolphins on holiday he's, he's I'm actually for you. he listens to this podcast actually on his ride to work every day oh well, yeah not anymore <laughs> don't crash <laughs> but he, but to be honest to to in his defense and i'll come to the defense of my brother on this one occasion he didn't know so i said to them dude what do you think they get these uh, dolphins from you know c can you exactly. can you explain i guess to the average punter why shouldn't they yeah, go to say to me. Uh, what why shouldn't they go to a dolphin park and and Perfect. play with the dolphins yep absolutely okay so let's talk about a dolphin in the wild and its natural habitat it swims probably 100 kilometers a day up to 
big social grouping, you know, in a rich ocean environment, right? Absolutely fantastic. It can dive deeply. It can really play around, have a great time. You're just not doing that in a small chlorinated pool like mm. they have at SeaWorld, right? You're just not doing that. So they just don't have the kind of life they would have in the wild. Second reason is, I'm going to give you another quiz. Do you, do you know how long a dolphin lives? Okay, I'm going to go with... Um Seven to ten years. Mm-hmm. Say so twenty years. Right. So fifty to sixty. Wow. Yeah. And 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 that's wow. right. And you, you talk about your brother didn't know. I totally get that. At the heart of the wildlife tourism industry is people just don't know these things. They don't know how badly an elephant is treated to get it to a point where it can allow a human to ride it. They don't know that these beautiful, intelligent dolphins can live fifty to sixty years in those tiny pools. Oh. And am I right in saying they're often? Like caught from the wild and brought in, uh, in a lot all, of countries. Yeah, yeah. Probably where your brother went down in the Caribbean. Caribbean. Is it Caribbean or Caribbean? Caribbean. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, 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 yeah. So there. Um, <laughs> yep, they probably were in some cases. I'm not 100 percent sure. Caught in the wild no. and chucked in a pool. The the, the dolphin hunts in Japan and places like that are just appalling. Yeah, they're just absolutely appalling. In Australia, they're not. They're bred. In Australia, they're bred. So in SeaWorld on the Gold Coast, for example. No, no, no. Okay, so I want to pull you guys up here. Yeah. I mean, how many people have seen Free Willy? I've mm. seen Free Willy, yeah. Exactly. Millions. So your brother, ask him, ask Matt if he's seen Free Willy and doesn't know about captivity with whales yeah, and dolphins. Look, I, I think it's a good point. I think a lot of people uh, remember what they want to and believe what they want. And I think some people just switch their – Have you ever ridden an elephant? Uh, I have actually. Uh, no, I did. I did. I did in Thailand. Yeah, yeah no, but I, I think I that have. was a. a uh, I thought it was a sanctuary for. Well, I mean, geez, uh, look how many. Uh, so I, I, t- I took my uh, son when he was a, a baby mm. to an elephant show in Singapore, and I look back now. But I mean, we have people who work with us who've gone elephant riding, yeah. or gone to the pool with the dolphin. They just didn't know. Yeah. But you know, part of what we do is we say to people, well, yeah. the truth is, you shouldn't do that. That's what it is. So yeah. it's not about blaming people or hating on your brother. It's just like, okay, now you do know. Don't do it again. Yeah. Tell your friends. Exactly. You know, that exactly. kind of thing. But, um, but yeah, so in Australia at SeaWorld, they're bred. They're bred in captivity. And we, oh, you know, we, we, we just put a really simple proposition to them last year and to the Queensland government who regulates them. Look, surely you've got up to about 30 dolphins there, right? The tide is turning on this. You know, people are starting to realise that it's cruel to do this kind of, you know, to keep the dolphins in captivity. Surely you could at the very least stop breeding. And, and mm. ensure that this yeah. is the last generation in captivity. They wouldn't even have that. Serious. So they pr- they're committed to continuing to breed. So the problem we have is, say a dolphin's born up there this year, that dolphin will still be alive in 2070. Oh. The one that died last year was nearly 60. You know, oh. and, and that's the cruelty. That's the cruelty in these tiny little pools. Is that, like, they're not talking to you. Is anyone else sort of jumping up and down and saying, hey, and is it obviously not having any... Impact. Afraid not. So we, for example, have gone to Australian travel companies, the same ones who did the right thing in uh, with regard to elephant riding. They stopped selling tickets, you know, the Hello World, the flight centres and the like. We've said to them, you've got to stop selling tickets to SeaWorld, you know, because you're profiting from cruelty. Yeah. Unfortunately, they haven't done the right thing. Qantas, Virgin, all these companies, they still sell tickets to SeaWorld. Wow. It's really poor. Yeah, that is, well, what we say on this uh, show, it's shit. That is, that is crap. That something needs to be done about that. I'm again. I just wasn't aware. I mean, they're breeding these dolphins, and uh. mm. but here's some good news though. Great thing is in New South Wales, we have a venue called Dolphin Marine Conservation Park, Coffs Harbour. We're very familiar with that location. Yeah, yeah with Dr. Dwan March and, yeah. and the crew down there. So those guys, yeah. however, they're great. New managing director Terry. Yeah, yeah. we yeah. met with, with Terry. Terry. Yep, a couple of years ago, and he's like, okay, you know. 
Look, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll give Duane a shout out. They look after those dolphins really well. They yeah. love the animals. They do their absolute best for them. You know, we really get on with these guys. A couple of years ago, uh, they were in court with Action for Dolphins mm. and there's a whole set two there. And then they said, all right, well, look, Action for Dolphins said, how about we try to get a sea sanctuary built? Yeah. You know, and we stepped in and said, yeah, if you agree to do that, we'll put $100,000 on the table for the feasibility study. Wow. So we've been working with them for the last two years on this feasibility study. And what we found is basically, yeah, it, it's feasible. You know, so it is. So obviously they because, could, yeah. they've got a little bit of a sort of a, I guess, a marinery sort of area. Basically the dolphins can hang out there, but they can come and go whatever as they please. They can't come and go because but unfortunately the, the ones wall. that are, yeah, oh, the one, okay. see, because the thing is that the ones that are bred in captivity just don't know how to hunt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that'd be a problem but there's other things that can be done. But they'll still have a much better life there. Sure. But when I say feasible, the problem, of course, is nothing's cheap no, uh, in yeah, this yeah, world. Yeah. That'll be 20 million bucks or something. To build a big break yeah, wall or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. But to be honest, you know, when we were up there last last year, I was up there with um, Action for Dolphins, Jordan, who's absolutely fantastic and deserves so much credit for what she's done in this space. We were meeting with the local council and the business chamber and saying, well, don't just look at this as an animal welfare issue. This no, is like a, a regional development oh, opportunity. God. You know, okay. why not? Yeah, sure. I mean, what do we, we you know, the economy needs stimulating we could put some money into coughs uh, do some work up there build this it's a big draw card so yeah we do a lot of work with them we're really proud of it but it's really notable how dolphin marine conservation park are clear people don't want this anymore they don't yeah. want to see dolphins in pools and they're really doing the right thing they're on the right side of history sea world it's just like it's 1971 when they opened jewelry isn't a gift you give just once it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Well, two things on there. I mean, the big banana's getting old. You know, like, <laughs> come on, they need something else. But secondly, we got a lot of stick for yeah. supporting uh, Dr. Duan and what they were mm. doing up there because mm. people weren't educated about the program that they were running under mm. new management. We got flack on social media. We had to put out a statement. But again, we were, we were like, well, hold on, these guys are actually doing way better than a lot of other um, yep. entities out there. Again, it's people sitting behind a computer mm. without the education behind it, just throwing crap out. But we get that too. Yeah, I suppose we, you do. We get a bit of grief. So just, just segueing a bit, we've had uh, horrific fires through Australia and then more recently the, f- the floods that have gone on, which is it's been wonderful to put out all the fires here in New South Wales and I guess mm. in Queensland. And with the rain, obviously, fill up the dams, get the grass growing, you know, give some water to the farmers, much needed. 
Uh, a couple of issues, and I'll get your comment on it. So the amount of trees that we've lost, mm. um, millions, billions, I mean, I don't even know the exact number, and what that does to stopping or, or reducing the stabilisation within the ground. So when it does rain, it's going to mobilise a lot more sediment and potentially you know, more pollution might enter your creeks, rivers and oceans. Um, so like with every natural disaster, there's obviously the recovery. What's the World Animal Protection doing at the moment? We've lost nearly a billion animals. Give us your 101 on, you know, I mean, how, how's your last couple of months been? It must be horrendous. Yeah, that's right. So we, like any other animal protection organisation, just stepped in and went, right, we're going to raise money and we're going to see what we can do to help out. We are primarily focused on a kind of a longer-term piece which sort of says, okay, how can we actually help communities get ready so that when the next fire season happens and we know it will happen, they're better prepared than they otherwise would be. So... We're primarily focused now on uh, designing a bunch of, uh, um, we call it prep timber as in September, uh, workshops which are going to work with local vets in those kind of fire vulnerable areas, work with local communities and make sure that uh, they've got their plans in place for their pets and their livestock and that they know what to do if they come across injured wildlife. So it's a longer term piece like that. You know, there's been some fantastic organisations out there who sort of, you know, got in there, they found the injured koalas, they looked after them, nursed them back to health. That's not really our piece. We provided yeah. money to some of those organisations to help them out. Yeah, but, you know, they, they were doing that job. But then the next thing we're doing is we're also starting increasingly now to start addressing the fact that we also need to look at it, the fact that animals in Australia are under threat not just from bushfires but from land clearing mm. and, you know, inappropriate development and the like. And I was really struck by um, someone, I can't remember his name, unfortunately, he said in some cases these animals that we're worried about in terms of them actually going extinct they were heading down that path anyway. The bushfires probably brought that date closer by mm. 10 years. But Jeez. we've got to accept we just don't have the national laws that protect animals in this country. I mean, the koalas were under pressure from land clearing mm. in regional areas already. The bushfires yeah. devastated them, but they were already under pressure. So we need to start getting to a point where we really do look after our animals. Have you got, have you got any facts and figures around you know the, the the wildlife that we've lost that you know maybe not be in the papers. You've got any sort of scoops that we could use for a snippet to get more clicks on this particular podcast? I wish I did. <laughs> I, th- I think we've read the same thing. That yeah, billion, yeah. that billion figure. I will say I've noticed that a couple of people have said, "Come on, that was probably conservative." Yeah, wow. that's a concern. I think you were talking about uh, runoff into rivers and streams. I think that's something that didn't get nearly enough attention. No, no, it certainly didn't. I mean, you know, you think about the big fish kills we've had because, of course, mm. what happens to that mm. ash? It flows into the rivers, it deoxygenates the rivers, and then the fish suffocate so that's right that's also a big problem yeah we did a um uh, ocean protect we interviewed from svs uh, two weeks ago trying to highlight that particular issue to go hey great the fires are out what's the next stage and, and i'll ask you this i flew up to brisbane last week and got the, the the aerial view of how green it is now up the coast in just a few weeks you know mm-hmm. it just blew my mind what do we need to do as as a country to be in a better position, knowing that it's gonna, you know, the um, temperatures are going to increase. Mm. We've got a hell of a lot of bushland, and it's going to regenerate very fast. Are we going to have to change our laws as far as what we can cut back and burn off? Because I know you do need to restrict what can grow, and from what I've heard and read, maybe we weren't that well prepared 
up until this bushfire crisis. Steve, you got any opinion or any comment on this? So I think, you know, when it comes to hazard reduction burning, and obviously it's a very politically charged topic, the, the thing that strikes me is when you look at the analysis, the rural fire services are saying, well, there's only a limit to what you can do. Mm. And in a lot of cases, the fires that were there just weren't going to be stopped by hazard reduction burning. And a lot of other cases, what they're saying is the problem we have is because it is so much hotter and so much mm. drier, it's just harder for us to mm. do the hazard reduction burning. And I think what you really can't get away from is the conclusion that unless you're actually dealing with climate change you're just fiddling you know you just got to deal with it like it's all very well to say we need to be better prepared and we do there's no question about it and we can do a whole bunch of other things and we can do more of the burning or we can do more of the preparation but if it keeps getting hotter and it keeps getting drier on this continent this kind of stuff is going to happen and it's going to get worse yeah and the key word there for you because you've been politically correct is if Mm. I mean the facts and the figures showing mm. you know we, we, we all know and I hope all our listeners you know we're, we're heading down a road and you know I think we, we know what it's going to be it's going to get hotter and hotter and hotter but that's really interesting comment but is the conversation you're having around the sort of water quality impacts post bushfires whatever it's, it's one of those things where it's actually hard for people to understand readily like oh, people, the, yeah people don't understand yeah, how, yeah, totally. yeah so in terms of when you see a, a, a forest up in flames and the kangaroos and koalas are burning it's readily obvious and it's heartbreaking stuff like the water quality impacts of of stormwater pollution post fire it's actually it won't actually sink into the brains of most people not not to say they're not sort of smart it's just that it's a sort of it's not a readily available concept oh and and the research is not there you know before we were talking about it we're like hey geez what's i rang you up and said hey what do you know about ash and you know water quality and we were were searching the internet and there hasn't actually been that much study i mean the obvious place is California, and even their research is very limited because I guess it gets to the point, you know, the disaster's over and, and it sort of gets lost a bit, and it's now the recovery. It's like, well, what's going to happen? Because these fish kills will happen months afterwards, and, mm. and you know, that'll be delayed. And so, do you think yeah. there may be, in light of what you said, more focus on post? Disaster? No, I think actually Ben, or oh, sorry, World Animal Protection's sort of strategy is, is right in terms of pr- appropriately planning uh, to mitigate as much as we can the potential impacts of these bushfires in terms of both animal and, and human welfare. Uh, but obviously, ultimately, the, the, the humongous elephant in the room is climate change. And if we, ca- if we don't do anything about that at, at a mass scale and immediately, we're, we're fiddling around the edges. We almost might as well just pack up our stumps and go home. Again, I guess that's probably. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I don't want to seem, seem like um, World Animal Protection needs to be doing everything and all things and everywhere. But uh, is that somehow? You, do you guys get involved in the sort of climate change space as well? We're having a big internal conversation about yeah. these things, and I think we've largely landed on the fact that we need to be more vocal about it. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, we need to start talking more about it because the truth is that it's one of the big threats to animals mm. coming up. And yeah, you know, you just as you say, you, there's there's a limit to how prepared you can be, and if you see the warming we've already got and how devastating it's been for animals, if that is increasing, if we get up to the kind of two degree thresholds that the scientists are warning us about, then we've we've really got problems. So yeah, increasingly we'll be more vocal about climate change, and and obviously. You must look at the sort of the, the Greta Thunberg sort of action. Thunberg. T- sorry, what did I say? It's, yeah, Thunberg. It's actually Thunberg. Okay, cool. I'll, 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 say, I'll say Greta. Okay. <laughs> but do you, do you look at their sort of oh, – sorry, that, that's a whole climate action sort of campaign. Do you, you've obviously been in the sort of uh, – activism, protection, environmental advocacy space for a long time. Is there anything you look at that and go, I think they're doing it the wrong way? That's an interesting question. I'm, 
obviously speaking personally, yeah, yeah not as an organisational rep. But look, I think sometimes it comes back to a point you made about the angry vegan. Mm. I think sometimes when I look at things like Extinction Rebellion, yeah, I feel that the way in which they position themselves. I fear that it could be a bit alienating mm. or polarising, more yeah. alienating. And I think that it's a concern that, um, you know, in some cases the message needs to be one that appeals to the biggest group mm. of people and sometimes the message doesn't. In the case of Greta, I actually think that she's great on that level. Mm. You know, I mean, the only people she triggers is Andrew Bolton, good on her. So, <laughs> well, I mean, see. You know, I don't know what these old men have a, such a problem with her, <laughs> yeah. but they just got to get over themselves. But generally her message I think is much more inclusive. And it's interesting with Greta, what I really like about her is that she's really focused. Read the science, yeah. look at the evidence. It's really calm and it's really clear. So that's what I think, you know, she does very well. Yeah, but I think I think my I agree with you. My only criticism in relation to Greta's campaign and, and I guess the sort of the masses that surround her is there's not enough focus on solutions. Mm. It's just like I don't want to hear about mm. acting. I want to hear about how I can act. Yeah. And what are the time frames? Yeah, but she's asking, yeah, okay, but she's really pointing at governments to take action, agreed? Mm. Yeah, but I, I think that's a mistake as well. Mm. I think as individuals we can have a huge influence well. As well. actually, sorry, I'll back you up. You sent it to me the other day. You know, Australians not declaring a climate emergency, but half the local governments in Australia mm. have. Mm. So, you know, the power is with the people, really. It I always mean, has been. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. I think, well, we, well, I think not, we have this mentality. I think we have this mentality of someone else is going to come along and save the day. Like, mm. I think we watch too many superhero movies mm. and, and read too many comic books. Fundamentally, we are the heroes we've been waiting for. It mm. just means we, but, it, but with that sort of power comes responsibility. We've got the power to act and we must act. If we don't act, we're so far gone, it's not funny. I mean, I, I hear that. I, I suppose I. I think one thing that bedevils the climate debate a bit is that we have arguments about whether it's government or corporations and individuals. It's all of us. Yeah, it's yeah. all of those things at the same time and that's yeah. how big it is. And in terms of what you can do as an individual, I always say to people, look, you essentially impact on the world in three ways. As a citizen, in terms of how you vote and what you make clear to your local you know, member of parliament is important to you. As a consumer, just as simple as that, what do you buy? Do you buy the high welfare meat? Do you refuse the plastic bag? You know, all that kind of stuff. And then as an exemplar, you know, we were talking before about the thing where you actually say to people, well, no, I don't go elephant riding. I'm prepared to you know, say that and, and be critical of people who do because I think that's the mm. wrong thing to do and you help to sort of mainstream things. So I think you've got to do all those things. Mm. Coming full circle, like a year ago, we, we blew your mind on stormwater pollution. Uh, has, it, has it sort of changed? Uh, I don't want to sort of... Is there a photo <laughs> of Brad in your <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. But I'm just saying... How many did you send them? Has, has, is World Animal Protection all of a sudden thinking about stormwater? Perchance. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 this is recording. This is very, very... That's right. My first point. So we're not talking about actively campaigning on stormwater, but we are certainly looking at marine pollution and saying, sure. all right, you know, how do we communicate with people about yeah. how multifaceted the problem mm. is? There's yeah. you know, no question about that. And we want to, you know, make it clear to people that there's all those sort of things they need to think about. Well, off mic, let's have a bit of a chat because we are quite active in a number of different uh, fields at the moment and mm. especially trying to talk to local, state and federal government about yeah. our plans. I mean, not that listeners can't, you know, listen to what we're talking about so that we don't have uh, that much time left on this beautiful podcast. I agree, but I will say this, just on mic, which yeah. is that to, you which know, is on now. to manage expectations <laughs> off mic, is that um, we're, we're pretty clear, we're guided by the evidence. And so the evidence says to us that if you look at the marine plastic pollution that impacts animals, it's ghost nets, it's plastic bags, it's balloons. 
and utensils for some species. So are you, are you saying microplastics aren't affecting animals? I, I think that, you know, it's hard to imagine microplastics don't have some impact on animals and also humans in the sense that you shouldn't eat plastic. But I think we're still getting to the point where we can actually demonstrate the extent to which, you know, do those microplastics sort of penetrate the cell wall? Do they have other impacts like that that we don't know about? So it's an open thing. However, I would say I'm a big believer in something which I think we don't seem to talk about much anymore, which is just the precautionary principle. Yeah, And that essentially says, well, you shouldn't put plastics into the environment, the marine environment or the land environment for the simple reason that you just shouldn't do that. Mm, you mm. just shouldn't litter. You shouldn't dispose of waste in that kind of way. And I guess the World Animal um, Protection, uh, you're, you're, when you say you're concentrating on the facts, you're also concentrating on big, easy wins, you know, balloons, plastic bags. I mean, we did a podcast with Daryl Blatchley uh, who... Uh, pulled out 40 kgs of plastic out mm. of a whale did necropsy over in the Philippines. Yeah, that's um, right. The amount of plastic bags being ingested mm. by whales and dolphins, it, it, everything. So, look, I totally agree where you're going with that. Got to push back, though. The reason we chose the nets is not because it's an easy win, it's because other people aren't talking about it. We're the same as you. Yeah. There's yeah, a yeah, whole okay, bunch of people yeah, yeah, out there yeah, talking yeah. plastic bags, and we looked at that and said, well, you know, that space is taken. Yeah, they yeah. can do that, and they're yeah. getting wins. Good on them, right? Yeah. We went for the nets. I will say, we talked about the balloons. We had to laugh. We said, what are we going to declare war on children's birthday parties? That's yes. fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Damn those kids from those money places. <laughs> That's right. But no, we're doing nets because others aren't. That was the whole thing about the triple okay. GI. You yeah, know. I think there's a Dr. J- I think Jennifer Lavers, Lavers, in, Lavers yeah, in the University of Tasmania. Yep. Yep. She's doing some research around the impact of balloons on marine species. Mm. And she's done lots of great stuff there and also about those kind of bigger plastics which break down. She did that amazing work with the, I think it was the shorebird I can't mm. remember where she found that you know they their stomachs were just full of plastic, yeah. and the parents were feeding yeah, the yeah, chicks yeah, plastic. Yeah, yeah, horrendous yeah, yeah. stuff, just horrendous stuff. That though, really to deal with that kind of problem, what you need is container deposit legislation, which is proven yeah, just for absolutely. the people at home to reduce uh, up to forty percent of the actual containers yep. going to the marine environment. It's a no-brainer. big shout out to container deposit schemes yep. uh, and to our friends at Tomra who uh, who power a lot of those schemes. Exactly, and to the governments that introduced them. 100%. I, mean, I think Victoria know, went. Yep, um, they've just announced that yeah. as well. So, so, that's so, so you, plastic pollution is a big problem. We can solve it though, mm-hmm. Ben. So you'll look after the ghost nets and balloons. We'll look after the stormwater. How about yeah, that? Well, let's, yeah, keep, yeah. let's keep talking. They're all, they're all linked. <laughs> no, as they, we are, know. they are. Now, um, just a b- couple more questions. So, Ben, mm-hmm. um, you worked at Greenpeace. Um, now, without telling me how old you are, when was that? <laughs> <laughs> I've been back and forth in Greenpeace. I kind okay. of I, I go in, I come out. Uh, anyone who's ever worked at Greenpeace knows that the, the, the great joke is like the, it's like the Hotel California. You can check out any time you like. <laughs> but uh, so the first time I worked with Greenpeace, I'm happy to say it was 1993. Oh, okay, okay, and, uh, no, good. And then good. the last time I worked was only a few years ago. Cool, because Greenpeace very close to my heart. I was going to um, say, did you know who sunk the Rainbow Warrior? The French. Oh, 100%. But that we didn't know that for years. You know what's down to the Kiwis? We actually got these two French guys from the French Foreign Legion. We held them. We mm. basically we got it out of them after some time. But they, they bloody denied it for years. Really? Do you know about the Rainbow Warrior? Oh, I know of it, yeah. Oh, mate, they came and sunk it. And, mm. and was it in Auckland? Mm, it was in Auckland. Yeah. Oh, they mate, killed I mean, that's a, uh, a Portuguese photographer. Yeah. Miranda Pereira. And frankly, the only reason they didn't kill more is they were all off at a pub celebrating the birthday of a guy named Steve Sawyer, who unfortunately just recently died. <sighs> he was an absolute hero. And, uh, and that's right. And that's something that I think people forget. I mean, talk about state-sponsored terrorism. Yeah. And, uh, against a guy, because the, the Rainbow Warrior was going up to try and intercept or pre- prevent the um, nuclear testing up in the atolls, wasn't it? Mm, to draw some attention to that. Oh, wow, 
anyway, Rainbow Warriors. Yeah, let's go for it. Yep, Greenpeace. Big, uh, big fan I, of the organisation. Can I oh, ask okay. a personal question? Like, obviously, there's a whole bunch of animal cruelty and uh, happening all over the globe. But are you actually optimistic with the future? Yep, I think so. I, I think. You know, broadly, if you look at uh, animal welfare, we've achieved a lot. Mm. You know, things are really moving along. And I really think that increasingly people start to realise that the way we used to treat animals and the way we used to treat the natural environment stemmed from a complete disconnection from it. And now people get it. You know, they get that animals are sentient. They get that a chicken is something which is inquisitive that deserves to have a decent life. They get that it's not just dogs, for example, Mm. that deserve Mm. to be treated well. So I am optimistic. I sort of feel that as we get to a point where people start to get that, they'll treat animals better. They'll treat the natural environment better. The question is, can we have this happen, this, this transformation quick enough? Yeah, That's yeah, and, and obviously some of these solutions, like you know, ocean plastic, for example, like I said before, big, hairy, scary problem, but the solutions are ready to rock and roll. Mm. To, to stop the proliferation of ghost nets, we can do that, I, right. in my mind, reasonably quickly. We can, we can ban, don't want to, don't want to disappoint all the kids having their birthday parties, we can pretty quickly ban some, uh, exactly some right. balloons. We can certainly reduce our consumption of single-use plastics, have container deposit schemes everywhere, and significantly reduce the amount of pollution going into our oceans and waterways. Simple as that. Exactly. And even make, you know, you can make an even bigger point building on that, which is that I can't think of a single problem we face on this planet today for which the technology isn't already available to solve it. It's just a matter of actually getting on with it. And that's from climate change all the way through to litter. And no one's advocating for more pollution. So that with technology, you know, there's hope. And uh, with people like yourself, and I want to say thank you for coming on our show today, the very well-spoken, beautifully spoken, uh, Mr. Ben Pearson. Brad, don't, don't you think we've had a lovely chat? Uh, look, I agree. Ben's uh, sultry uh, ch- uh, voice has uh, you know, got all the ladies swooning. Dulcet tones. got all the ladies <laughs> swooning. But look, thanks so much for your time today, Ben. And all I can say is just keep up the amazing work yeah. that your organisation, mm-hmm. and, you, and you do personally. So well right, done. Right back at you. Thanks for having me on. Cheers, really enjoyed buddy. it. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.